Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and as usual, I'm joined by Law360 Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going well, Natalie. How are you? Good, good. A busy week at the court. I'm excited to, to talk through with you. Yeah, that's right. The court rounded out its November argument session. It heard arguments on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, including a three-plus-hour hearing yesterday, that being Wednesday, in a case on the Indian Child Welfare Act that will be going over today. So I'm still kind of like, you know, getting feeling back in my legs after spending three-plus hours sitting down in that courtroom uh, during a pretty lively oral argument session. But um yeah, it's, it's just we're in a new world now with the new argument format where cases just go really long, Natalie. You know, I feel for you, <laughs> but I can't wait to talk about that case because it was such a big one. Um, before we jump to that, though, we're still kind of have news talking about the case, the big case from last week, which was uh, obviously the Harvard case. Uh Jimmy, you had a great story this week about how a squash organization, a college squash organization, uh, had some words for Justice Gorsuch. Yeah, so uh, you weren't there the day that we recorded our uh, episode on the affirmative action cases, but uh, Chris and I were talking about Justice Gorsuch's particular fascination with college squash, or I should say his particular antipathy towards college squash. I mean, it was an example he used over and over um, during the you know, more than five hours of oral arguments um, on Monday, October 31st in the cases. He was basically like, you know, why do these colleges, these Ivy League schools need like these, you know, uh, admissions preferences for athletes like college squash players when those admissions policies tend to favor predominantly white kids? So like, you know, before they start doing things like considering race in the admissions process, why don't they just get rid of these advantages for college squash players? Is that really like a compelling interest, you know, for these universities? So that was a particular line of questioning that he homed in on that we uh, were talking about that I was talking about with Chris the other day. And so <laughs> I don't honestly, Chris kind of gave me the idea because he was bringing it up a lot about uh, uh, Gorsuch's hatred of squash players. So I, I figured I'd just reach out to uh, maybe Harvard's squash team to see if they had any thoughts about the justices' questions. It seemed to be a little, you know, one-sided at the moment. So um, I heard back a few days later, it turned out that uh, the, the coach of the team had forwarded um, my inquiry to the College Squash Association, which is the governing body of intercollegiate squash. Um, there's around, I think, 60 school members that have their uh, uh, college squash teams that compete in this uh, league. And basically, he had prepared, the, the league commissioner had prepared like this huge memorandum, like responding to each point that Justice Gorsuch has made in his in the oral arguments, basically accusing the justice of, of adopting this harmful stereotype of squash players as being predominantly white when he said that that's just outdated and not the case. Um, uh, he says, uh, college squash teams successfully enrich campus communities by enticing a set of diverse, driven, and academically successful student athletes to enroll each year. Um, and he uh, contrasted squash demographics with those of the broader NCAA. And he says that actually squash athletes are more diverse than uh, NCAA athletes across the board. 43.5% of uh, college squash association athletes were listed as non-white for the 2021 season, uh, a percentage even higher within the Ivy League where Harvard competes, uh, which goes up to 44.7% of players uh, being uh, listed as non-white uh, by contrast, NCAA across all sports was only 36%. 
Um, so yeah, so he definitely had a rejoinder there. I should say this is uh, David Pullman, the um, lead commissioner of the CSA. So kind of a funny little uh, 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 rejoinder there. I didn't want to let Justice Gorsuch necessarily have the last word. Um, but yeah, you know, it just goes to show that uh, you always got to get the other side's perspective in these matters. See, I would never have realized the squash was so diverse. So kudos to you for for following through on that one. And and maybe maybe we'll see uh, more comments from Justice Gorsuch on squash um, in the future. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. So let's go ahead and jump into the Indian Child Welfare Act case, Jimmy, that uh, you, again, were at for three hours. So sorry again about that. Um, so it involves the Indian Child Welfare Act, a 40-year-old law that requires state family courts to prioritize keeping Native American children in Indian communities. Can you little get, Can you give us a little bit more of the background of what this case, though, uh, is calling into question? Sure. Well, first, let's start with some background on the Indian Child Welfare Act. So this was a law passed in 1978, um, basically after decades and decades of what the tribes had called a form of cultural genocide of Indian children being ripped from Indian communities by, you know, at first it was the federal government's program of mass assimilation of Indian children, and then it was state family courts basically placing uh, Indian children with non-Native households at, in the tribe's view, very, very alarming rates, decimating uh, tribal membership across the country. And so in passing this law, Congress basically had found that they needed to do something in order to preserve the integrity of tribal sovereignty and also in order to uh, promote uh, the interests of the child's cultural connections with Native communities. So they passed ICWA in the late 70s, uh, laying out a regime whereby before um, state family courts can remove Indian children from Indian homes and communities, they need to first uh, consider alternative native uh, placements before um, ultimately uh, putting them with a non-native household. So that first is a priority on family members. Um, Second, there's a priority on uh, members of the same tribe as the child. Uh, And third is a priority on just another uh, member or a family that is another member of another tribe. Um, uh, And failing that, obviously, then the uh, non-native family will be considered for placement. Um, Now, this case involves a group of non-Native families that were fostering Indian children that had sought to uh, initiate adoption proceedings before Native tribes intervened under um, the uh, regime set out in ICWA to find alternatives within Native communities. Um, They eventually, uh, you know, they had developed bonds with these children, and so they brought a lawsuit in federal court challenging um, the constitutionality of ICWA, a challenge that was ultimately joined by uh, three states, uh, including Texas. Can you walk us through how this case came up the court pipeline, essentially, to the Supreme Court? Sure. After uh, securing a a victory in a federal district court, the case went on appeal to the Fifth Circuit, which ultimately sided um, almost entirely against the challengers here, with the exception of one small part of ICWA involving placements for um, uh, uh, families that did not even belong to uh, the same tribe as the as the children. So the case is now on appeal to the Supreme Court, where the 
individual plaintiffs and the state of Texas, I believe, is the only state left in the case, are making the argument that ICWA is an unconstitutional form of race discrimination in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Um, Additionally, they say it is a a, a breach, um, uh, an overreach of Congress's authority to regulate in Indian affairs. Um, The individual plaintiffs in particular make the argument that uh, Congress really only has the authority to regulate uh, uh, commerce is the is the term used by the Constitution, um, but they say that you know regulating in the area of the state foster care system, which you know involves state family law, is a clear um, overstep of Congress's authority in this area. And in fact, Texas makes a particular argument that this law violates the separation of powers. It it it, it basically forces state court officials applying state law in family courts to uh, consider federal legislation and uh, uh, basically take steps to effectuate federal prerogatives. That violates something called the anti-commandeering principle that's been recognized by the Supreme Court in recent years. So that's the basic legal landscape of the arguments that the challengers are making to the Supreme Court. So there are four parties, though, to this appeal. There's the foster parents, the state of Texas, the Department of the Interior, and the Native American tribes. You've kind of laid out the foster parents and Texas aside, but what about the DOI and the Native American tribes? How did, how are they framing this case? So there's a lot of overlap between the defenses that the that the that the defenders, let's call them, are making to ICWA. Um, and uh, you know, one of those is the idea that Congress's authority to regulate in the area of Indian affairs is a word they use, plenary, meaning basically all-encompassing. This is a principle that um, the Supreme Court has recognized for many, many years, um, stretching way back into the 19th century um, and perhaps even earlier. Basically, the idea that Constitution, the structure of the Constitution, gives Congress very broad authority to regulate in this area under, you know, the Indian Commerce Clause, um, which which has been interpreted to include more than just commerce, but you know, other forms of intercourse is the word that they use between um, uh, natives and non-natives, along with uh, you know the war powers and the the treaty powers of 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 Congress in this area. So you know, this is definitely not an overstep in their mind. This is simply a law that stood for 40 years in order to basically protect uh, tribal interests because the Constitution um, puts the federal government in a trust-trustee relationship um, vis-a-vis Indian tribes and that this is just the federal government uh, exercising that same those same trust responsibilities towards Native tribes. Um, the tribes also make the argument that this can't be considered you know, some kind of invidious racial classification um, in violation of the Equal Protection Clause because these are political classifications, not racial classifications. Um, tribes in the, in, the, in the structure of the Constitution are treated um, as sovereigns alongside states and foreign powers. Um, and that they are politically classified entities as opposed to, you know, a racial group like you might consider African Americans or Hispanic Americans, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the basic defenses that they have laid out to the law that the that the Supreme Court entertained on Wednesday. Now, I have to imagine there's a lot of ground covered in three hours, um, but were there any clear takeaways from the arguments? 
You asked the million dollar question. So I don't know that there is a clear takeaway because it was a, you know, there was a ton of questions being asked on both sides. And I, I can't sit here and tell you that, you know, the justices are going to vote one way or the other in the case. I think what I can say is that um, this case does appear to have split in some kind of way um, that will that remains to be seen the conservative uh, supermajority on the court. So, you know, obviously there's a, a six justice uh, supermajority of Republican appointees on the court, um, and some of them broke out, broke down along different lines during the arguments. Um, the the most obvious one who comes to mind is Justice Neil Gorsuch. I mean, this is something that we've talked about the podcast before. Um, this is a justice who comes to the bench from the Tenth Circuit when he was a federal circuit judge, when he heard a lot of Native American law cases. And over the, his last few years on the court, he has, in no uncertain terms, been basically the biggest ally of Native American tribes consistently across all cases than perhaps any other member of the court. And so he was extremely um, proactive during oral arguments, pushing back against the attorney representing uh, the, the foster families, as along with um, the state of Texas, basically saying, you know, uh, Congress, we've recognized Congress's power to regulate in this area for many, many years. Um, and he basically says that the Constitution puts tribes on the same footing as, let's say, states or foreign sovereigns. And uh, he pointed to a number of uh, laws that basically give the federal government the authority to regulate in the area of custody matters when it comes to like, you know, the Hague Convention or, or kidnapping laws um, to negotiate and mediate custodial disputes with, with, with separate sovereigns, saying that, you know, tribes are basically just another sovereign in the eyes of the Constitution where uh, uh, Congress is vested with the authority to regulate in those matters. Um, and he was really pushing back against both of those attorneys. Um, and I mean, that's to say that's on the merits. He, he, he doesn't even necessarily think that they have standing in this case because of the way they've framed their lawsuit as challenging, um, or he, he, uh, the, 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 the individual, uh, foster parents, they named the federal officials of the department of interior as the defendants in the case. And he was basically saying like, you named the wrong defendants because, in order for you to have standing, you would have had to have sued the state court officials tasked with, um, you know, enforcing the terms of of ICWA. So that's all to say, he was extremely hostile to um, the the foster parents and the state of Texas, and extremely sympathetic to the tribes. He didn't even ask, I don't think, the tribes' attorney basically any questions um, during the argument. That is in stark, stark contrast, Natalie, to. Um, someone like Chief Justice Roberts and Samuel Alito. So they were particularly mum because remember the first two attorneys that argued were, uh, let's see, the the, 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 uh, the attorney representing the foster families and then the attorney for the state of Texas got up and, and Roberts and Alito were pretty silent. They didn't really have any questions for, for those two attorneys. But then as soon as... Um, the Department of Interior's attorney, uh, 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 Deputy Solicitor General Edwin Needler, representing the federal government, got up. You know, Roberts kind of peeks up, he comes alive, and he was basically saying, like, look, it sounds like what this law does is it subordinates the best interest of the child to the political needs of the tribes. 
And is that really something that like we should be doing? I mean, that was the implication, but that's those are the words that he used that it it subordinates the best interest of the child. Um, and so that doesn't particularly seem like a helpful question for the government, but something that he was really concerned about, just like to what extent do the political interests of the tribes in their continued perseverance and flourishment, um, because remember, that's what Congress found when they enacted these preferences, to what extent do those interests trump the actual you know, best interests of the actual um, Indian child at issue in these cases? Um, so you could totally see and draw a line maybe through the, through the uh, conservative uh, wing of the court um, some some. Uh, some tension there and how they're approaching these cases. That that point you made though about Justice Gorsuch questioning standing. I mean, that's a big question at this late stage of the game in such a big case like this. But does that open the door to potentially them not decide? Like, is there a scenario here where they don't decide this messy question? I mean, look. I think when you have Gorsuch hammering away on standing, I think you have a situation where this is. This could potentially rear its head in an aspect of his opinion. Um, I'd be surprised if they dismissed the case on standing grounds or at least ruled against um, the challengers on standing grounds. It seemed like he was he was one of the few justices with maybe the exception of um, Sotomayor to really like, you know, focus in on that threshold issue as opposed to the merits. Um, but you know, I, I never say never. It, so basically what I'm getting at here is you have, um, a, a court now in Indian law cases for the last several terms since justice Barrett joined the court. Gorsuch used to be the, the deciding vote. Um, I mean, remember McGirt, right? So he writes, I believe the majority opinion in the 2020 McGirt decision, um, out of Oklahoma, basically saying that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the historic boundary of these tribes in Oklahoma still exists for purposes of criminal law. And that was a tight decision. And then Justice Barrett joins the court and they have that follow on to McGirt um, last term in Castro Huerta, where she's actually the decisive vote in the case. So the power dynamics in these Native American law cases has shifted. I mean, when Ginsburg was alive before Barrett replaced her, you could you could probably make the argument that Gorsuch was the most powerful voice in these types of cases. That seems to no longer be the case. It seems like Barrett is now kind of the power center in the swing vote in these cases. And last term is, is an example. I think in every single Indian law case um, decided last term, she was in the majority. And I think I, I want to say in two of those, you know, she came on, she came out in different ways. One was a, a five to four ruling um, in favor of the tribes argument in that case. And another one was a five to ruling five to four ruling against the tribes. So I was paying pretty close attention and um, to what she was saying, and it was pretty hard to tell where she was coming out. What about the more liberal side of the court? I mean, are, do, do they seem unified on this topic? Because I could see this not necessarily being, again, something where either side's particularly unified. I, I would say that, that that's, that's often the case in some cases like this. Um, there was a case... Uh, I believe it was last term involving specialized uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs courts and whether those, you know, were basically considered the same types of forums as federal district courts for purposes of double jeopardy. And that one kind of split the uh, liberal side of the court. Um, but 
This is not one of those cases. This is a clear ideological split where the three liberal justices on the court were um, almost exclusively sympathetic to the tribal interests and the interests of the federal government in this case. Um, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, you know, she's been a very proactive questioner on the courts and she joined and Wednesday was no exception. She was saying, look, you know, the state of Texas, these adoptive families or these these foster care families, they make pretty powerful arguments about why, in their view, Congress's judgment about the best interest of the child uh, was wrong. Um, but she says, you know, who decides that question? Is that a question for courts to decide? Or is that a question for Congress to decide? And she refers over and over again to the legislative findings of the um, uh, of the Congress that passed the Indian Child Welfare Act in the late 70s. And she said, look, they had found that this law was instrumental to the political interests of the tribe and in the best interests of the children, and that you know it's not our job to second-guess the findings of Congress when we have basically deferred to Congress's broad powers to regulate in the areas of Indian affairs for many, many years. And she pushes back on what she calls the re relatively novel principle that Texas was, was arguing for, the anti-commandeering principle, um, which she said has never been applied in an area of, uh, of, of Native American law. And that she's like, should we apply this rather kind of novel constitutional principle that I, I think dates back, I think in her words, to the 90s, to Indian affairs where Congress has been regulating since the dawn of the Republic. And she even goes back to the days of uh, the Articles of Confederation before the Constitution was even ratified to suggest that the Articles of Confederation vested the states with a lot of authority to to regulate in, in Indian affairs. But that was proven to be a disaster. And of course, the Constitution followed on the heels of the Articles of Confederation after it proved completely unworkable given the lack of power of the federal government. And now we're in a situation where Congress does have this authority. That's at least the words of uh, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. So I would say, yeah, the liberal justice is very sympathetic, but that was not to say that um, you know a lot of the Republican appointees on the court let those arguments go uncontested. I mean, Alito and Roberts and even Kavanaugh, they were basically saying like, look, you have pursued the argument that uh, Congress has plenary authority in this area, all-encompassing authority, but where is the limit? And they use these examples um, from kind of like modern political uh, discussions. They said like, for instance, uh, one of the examples that they used was COVID vaccines. Could Congress just pass a law basically saying like Native Americans are first in line to get COVID vaccines because of their plenary authority to regulate in the area of Indian affairs and no one can do anything about that? Uh, another example that Brett Kavanaugh used was uh, this will sound familiar, affirmative action in, in, in college admissions. Can Congress pass a law that basically commandeers states to prioritize the admission of Native Americans before any other applicants to institutions of higher education? Would that be uh, an excess of Congress's plenary authority in that area? So you have this kind of seed that they're, that they're, that they're, that they planted here, the idea that we've recognized Congress's broad power to regulate in this area, but is it all encompassing? Um, now, those are examples that they used, but the 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 kind of reading between the lines there is that you know there should be some limit on their ability to regulate, and maybe ICWA is one of those limits. Well, it'll be fascinating to see how this one shakes out, Jimmy. 
thank you so much for talking us through that one and breaking it all down. I think that just about does it, though, for us this week. Thanks, Natalie. Really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Mercano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Sunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Oh, and please write us a review. Thanks so much. <laughs>